Life episode 97. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior and endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast isn't here to replace your current medical treatment and is here for educational purposes only. As always, I want to thank our first sponsor today, BU. These guys are the makers of the incredible period patches that I love, and also a beautiful organic CBD range, menstrual cup, and chafing cream. And they really are one of the pioneers of natural and really quite revolutionary period care, in my opinion. I have seen these period patches change people's experience of their periods so dramatically and their experience of endometriosis so dramatically. And they are really one of the first things that I recommend to my clients if my clients are going through a flare-up or it's taken a while for their symptoms to calm down and for us to implement changes. I still want to provide my clients with something that's going to provide relief, you know, in that current moment. And I always recommend BU period patches because I just believe in them so much and they have helped me so much and they're natural. And it's just when you are so commonly faced with all of these different drugs that can have side effects, um, they have their place, but sometimes you just want a more uh, side effect free option. So um I absolutely love these patches. They've been helping me through a interstitial cystitis flare-up that I've been going through recently. You can find out all about that on Instagram. Um, and if you want to try the BU patches for yourself, you can just head to the link in my show notes or go straight to their website, which is buonline.co.uk. So that's b-e-y-o-u-online.co.uk. If you are in the US or in Canada, you can actually also order your BU patches from Cult Beauty and they will ship to the US or to Canada. So that's cultbeauty.co.uk. Let me know how you get on with them. Okay, so today I wanted to go over my um, SIBO journey so far. Um, because I've, I feel like I've been sharing it in bits and pieces and I thought it might be more helpful to you guys to have it in sort of one chunk because I would hope that you recognize some of what I've gone through in your story and it might help you to identify what's going on for you and, um, maybe feel less alone. Um, and also just put some pieces of the puzzle together. Honestly, for me, this is that's the biggest thing that's come out of this SIBO journey is like finally things are starting to make sense um, in a way that they didn't fully when I got my endo diagnosis. Um, I just want to let you guys know that, um, yeah, I'll give you a bit of trigger warning. I will be talking about eating disorders in this um, episode, um, and like mental health issues, like anxiety. Um, so yeah, if 
those are triggering for you, then um, of course do what you need to do to feel um, safe and um, feel free to skip this episode. So another reason why I wanted to talk about this is because um, more and more of my clients have been diagnosed with endometri- uh, endometriosis, of course, <laughs> with SIBO. And all of the girls who are coming into my new cohort next week, all of them off the, off the top of my head have suspected SIBO. And a lot of them have now come to me because of that, because they, you know, they recognize that I talk about SIBO a lot. And then I read in Nicole Chardim's book that uh, one study found 80% of endo patients had SIBO. So I just really think that, and I'm seeing more and more how SIBO is affecting my clients and their experience of endometriosis. So I just think it really needs to be talked about more and more. Like I feel like SIBO is the triplet, right? So if, if like, I see as the evil twin of endo, that's what's been dubbed. Like I actually think there's, there's, there's actually a triplet here, like endo, I see, and SIBO. So I'll start with my diagnosis. Okay. So obviously you guys now understand the, um, if you listen to last week's episode on SIBO testing, you sort of understand the measurements. So here are my results. So I am in the moderate range. Um, so there's a sort of scale of mild to severe, um, in terms of gas, but that doesn't always correlate with symptoms. So, um, my highest level for hydrogen reached 40 and my highest level, um, for methane is reached 24. Yeah. So I'm in the moderate range, which I was actually quite surprised by because when I explain my story, you'll sort of understand a bit more, but I assumed that it might be severe, but having said that, I sort of assumed that on my history of how bad my SIBO symptoms were. But in the past three years, I would say, I've really, really got my symptoms under control. And I think somewhere along the way, some of my SIBO reduced, it got killed off. And I had a theory as to what did that, but now I can't remember. And I think it got, I think it got worse again when I did that C, um, when I did that elimination diet because my symptoms just flared up. Um, so I think it got worse again during that period. And so I wonder, had I tested before I did that elimination diet in January, would my, would my, um, gas levels have been even lower? But if I had tested three years ago, or five years ago, I think they would have been, my levels would have been really high. So I'm positive for hydrogen and methane. And one of the reasons why I was kind of like on the fence and I I hadn't really like hugely talked about it that much, um, like what I was going to do with my treatment and things is because I strongly, strongly suspected hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. And I spoke to Dr. Alison Seebecker and she said, yes, we are finding you can have all three types of SIBO. But of course, you can't detect hydrogen sulfide type SIBO on um, the breath test. So you could, in some cases, I think it's 30% of cases, see a pattern where the hydrogen and the 
um, methane would almost be zero, and that would indicate the presence of hydrogen sulfide. However, you can also have like high levels of hydrogen and um, methane, and also have hydrogen sulfide type SIBO, and it you know you just can't get it. Um, you just can't see a pattern there, but it wouldn't detect anyway. There's no specific test to like literally measure the gas levels of hydrogen sulfide, which is the gas you would be measuring for that. And so I spoke to Dr. Alison Seabeck and she was like, yes, you absolutely can have that. Um, I listed all of the symptoms and she was like, goodness, like, yes, this is all free. And so just to give you like an overview of the symptoms again. So the basic symptoms of um, of SIBO itself would be um, IBS, severe bloating, a feeling of fullness in the stomach or um, bloating in the stomach, even if it doesn't visually look like that. Acid reflux can be a problem, um, burping, like excessive bur burping, excessive gas, um, diarrhea, constipation, and it doesn't have to be um, your classic constipation or diarrhea. It could be that, you know, instead of um, complete constipation where you can't go to the toilet, you're actually like passing almost like pellets, like really hard stools, or your diarrhea is that you go like four or five times a day and it's really soft stools. So it's not class, you know, it doesn't have to be like classic diarrhea and classic constipation. Um, and fatigue is obviously, um, a symptom, nutrient deficiencies, um, are a symptom quite commonly, um, B12, ferritin, which is iron, your iron stores, um, vitamins A, D, E, and K, maybe C off the top of my head, um, Leaky gut symptoms, so systemic body symptoms, so like inflammation, achy joints, headaches, depression, very, very commonly anxiety and often really acute anxiety. Um, weight loss in some people, weight gain in others. Food reactions, nausea, vomiting. And often there are like other signs as well that aren't symptoms. So you can um, eat white bread or white rice and not have a reaction. But if you ate couscous or if you ate um, raw carrots, you would have a reaction. So, you know, healthier foods, quote unquote, healthier foods would cause, seem to cause you more of a reaction. Or since you've been starting to eat healthier, you've had a worsening reaction. And that's because fiber feeds SIBO and things like white rice and white um, bread aren't very high in fiber. Now that's not the case for everyone. Some people react to those too, but if you've noticed something like that, then that's a, a classic SIBO sign. Um, other classic SIBO signs are foods that are supposed to be gut healing, like aloe vera, chamomile, collagen, bone broth. Um, they trigger reactions. Oh, brain fog is also um, a symptom. And then with hydrogen sulfide type SIBO, there are extra symptoms. So tingling and or numbness in your hands, feet, legs and arms. Um, and I'd been getting that really quite badly in the past couple of years. I put it down to B12, lack of B12, and then I got my levels back up and it still was there um, in varying degrees. 
worsening symptoms after an Epsom salt bath or sulfur-containing foods. I don't seem to get worsening symptoms after um, Epsom salt baths. The reason being, by the way, is because they contain sulfur. Um, But I do get worse symptoms after sulfur-containing foods. Bladder pain, obviously. Histamine sensitivity, absolutely. Bladder frequency or urgency. Body pain, generally feeling unwell all the time. Food intolerances, sulfur-smelling gas, which is quite rare. Um, And so I have like 95% of the hydrogen sulfide symptoms. And I, you know, explained, explained all of that. So... As a result of speaking to Dr. Seebecker, I am going to treat my um, SIBO as if I have all three. And perhaps that's the one where my gas is really high. That would be interesting. Um, I will never know. <laughs> I never know how high it is um, until they, they're they working on a test. So, you know, if the test is out soon, I guess I can find out. Um, so as a result, I'm going to be treating all three. And I'm going to do an episode probably with Dr. C. Becker on the treatment options, but I'm not going to do antibiotics because it's just too much work trying to get them from the doctors. Um, And I could do the elemental diet. Now, the elemental diet is basically a liquid diet where all all of your essential nutrients are in the pre-digested form. So literally your protein is in amino acids, your fat is in just fat, your carbohydrates are in simple carbohydrates, your vitamins are in the most easily absorbed form, um, and it has all of the calories that you need for the day, and you uh, would drink the amount that you need a day for your calories, and you would be fed, but the SIBO wouldn't, because there's no actual food, there's no fiber, there's no, um, there's no like complex carbohydrates for them to eat up because the carbohydrate that you're going to be ingesting is in the simplest form it's just going to go straight through to that small um, straight through that gut barrier and into your bloodstream to feed you it's a very very successful um treatment for lots of different um gastro problems and it's very successful with SIBO, especially in severe cases. Um, it reduces the gas levels by 70 parts per million. So obviously, if I did it, in theory, if I responded well to it, I could potentially only need to do one round of treatment and be done. But the elemental diet is tough. You're looking at two weeks to three weeks of a completely liquid diet and you can get die off with that and the die off as I explained last week is the reaction to the SIBO dying as the SIBO dies it releases it breaks down and the cell walls of the SIBO um, are toxins to us they're called lipopolysaccharides and I'm going to talk about those a lot more um, as we go through this and so as they as the SIBO dies and you're exposed to these, they get released into your system. If you've got leaky gut, those are going out through your gut barrier into your bloodstream and causing an immune response. And you're going to feel quite unwell um, and have a, you know, it will cause things like inflammation, um, worsening symptoms, feeling like you've got a cold. And this doesn't happen for everyone, but it is a risk. And 
Usually it lasts, I believe, one to three days, but some people it lasts throughout the whole duration. So it's a tough one. And obviously it comes with quite a lot of emotional um, complications because it can be hard to do that for that amount of time. The other option for me would be antimicrobial herbs. Now, depending on the type of SIBO you have, that dictates the type of herbs that you would go with. Now, um, Dr. Seabeck has suggested that I go with oregano. Um, I could do a couple of others and add bismuth, um, which I'll discuss with Dr. Allison Seabecker in the interview we do. Um, but so there are a couple of herbs that I'm playing that I could do, um, or I could just do straight up oregano. Um, I could do like oregano supplements, high strength oregano supplements. Um, and so that would be cheaper just doing one and it would hopefully target all of them. But in some cases it doesn't always work with methane, I believe. Um, off the top of my head, it might be hydrogen. I think it's me thing. Um, so if I was to do antimicrobial herbs, then that would take me longer. So a round of antimicrobial herbs is four to six weeks. You're probably looking at about five weeks because you can start to build resistance to the herbs um, in week five or six. So I kind of probably wouldn't push it as I wouldn't want to relapse whilst I'm doing the treatment. And Antimicrobial herbs reduce the gas numbers on average by 30. So for me, I would be looking at about, you know, a round and a half of treatment. Now you take two weeks, a two week break between, between treatment rounds. And I would want to do something called the biophasic diet before I started the herbs. So the biophasic diet is a SIBO diet. It is a rich, it's designed by Dr. Um, Jacoby, and she based it on Dr. Seebecker's SIBO-specific food guide, which is a diet for um, her diet for SIBO. Now, these diets are for symptom reduction. They don't you can't you can't kill SIBO with the diet, but you can reduce your symptoms. Now, Dr. Jacoby designed the biophasic diet, and what that is is it's Dr. Seebecker's. Um, food guide but put in a structure and what she does with her patients is she gets them to do phase one of this diet before they do the antimicrobial herbs because what it does is it helps to calm down the SIBO and it sort of starves them a little bit so some of them die off but it wouldn't you know on its own it wouldn't eradicate them completely so the SIBO calms down and then you do the antimicrobial herbs. And so ideally your die off is less by that point because you're having less SIBO dying at the same time and you're having less, you know, you're you're going in having prepared your body a little bit more. You've calmed down some of those SIBO symptoms so that when you do the antimicrobial herbs, you don't have such bad die off because die off with antimicrobial herbs is also an issue like the elemental diet, whereas you don't really get die off with antibiotics. If I was to do the um, herbal protocol, then I'm looking at about a month, a month on the biphasic diet first, then about a month on the antimicrobials, then a two week break, then about another two weeks, maybe another month potentially. So we're looking at, I guess, three months at the moment. 
And then you do preventative steps and the preventative steps are post-treatment once you've got the all clear and that's three to six months. And that includes um, diet. So doing the SIBO specific food guide or the SIBO biphasic, essentially a low carbohydrate diet. Um, Prokinetics. Now, prokinetics help support the gut motility. So essentially they help the gut to stay clean so there's no buildup of bacteria and meal spacing. So you're spacing out your meals so your gut motility has a chance to actually work and clear through the um, leftover bacteria. So just to recap, if any of you haven't listened to my past episodes on this, the gut motility is basically there's something called your migrating motor complex. And this is a um, sort of movement, a motion that happens in your small intestine that clears through old food and bacteria after the food has traveled through so your your food has traveled through into the large intestine but this is like the this is not that movement this is the cleaning up afterwards and if that is deficient if there's something wrong with that then you get this stagnant buildup of bacteria in your small intestine leading to SIBO and that's the number one cause of SIBO so you have to put these preventative steps in place to avoid relapsing post um post treatment now two thirds of people will relapse because there's a root cause that needs to be addressed and if if you did relapse then you would investigate that root cause but you know in theory if i did the antimicrobial herbs i'm looking at three nine months maybe nine months maybe of treatment uh, of treatment and preventative steps if i did the elemental diet then i'm looking at you know, one month, I'm looking at seven months, uh, seven, well, I'm looking at five ish to seven months. So depending on how long I need to do the preventative steps for, because I am crazy, I am considering doing both. The reason being is I obviously work with a lot of clients with SIBO and Obviously, all of my clients have endometriosis. And one of the reasons why I am able to do what I do besides my training is because I have lived experience of endometriosis. I have lived experience with SIBO. I don't, however, have lived experience with the treatments. So if I was to put myself through both, I know I would know the challenges, you know, and I would know the pitfalls and the experiences and be able to support my clients even further. And so I'm wondering whether I do one round of antimicrobial herbs to experience that and then finish it off with the elemental diet um, because I, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, that will just clear it all out and the the herbs will have, you know, done done quite a good amount of work as well. So I couldn't really do it the other way around because the elemental diet would have hopefully hopefully just eradicated it all in one go. So I wouldn't need to put my body through the herbs after that. So it would have to be the other way around. Um, but it's really expensive. So the elemental diet can be about up to a grand. And the reason being is because you have to have a lot of formula to make up your calories a day. So it ends up adding up to be quite expensive. You can do an at home version where you make it at home but it does not taste good. So it's it, it's preferable to buy it 
because you don't have you're not put off so much by the taste because they they make it taste better um but it is cheaper it's like a couple hundred pounds if you're going to make it yourself the antimicrobial herbs will probably cost a couple hundred pounds depending on how many i need um so it's a lot of money if i was to do both it would be a lot of money if i was just going to do the elemental diet um just doing the herbal anti the antimicrobial herbs would be a bit more reasonable um but if I combine them, it's going to be a lot. I can't do it right now because I want to see how my finances, what they do in the coming months, given the COVID situation. Um, and I don't have that money to just be able to start. So I need to plan that and I need to save. And the other thing is, I don't really want to be coaching if I'm experiencing dire symptoms, because if they're bad, how am I going to be a good coach when I'm feeling so unwell? So what I'm planning on doing potentially is not working with any clients from October to December and working on the course and the membership and maybe taking some time off because I haven't had any time off, not even a bank holiday at all this year, I think, or at all since last January. So <laughs> taking some time off could be nice. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe taking some time off in October, starting the antimicrobial herbs, getting through the worst of the die off if it happens, um, during that time and then moving on to the elemental diet and just having that time solely for healing and, you know, working, really just working by myself um, on this endo life rather than supporting clients through that time because I, ju I just don't want to get, I don't want to spend that money and get halfway through some treatment and be like, oh my gosh, I can't keep doing this because I'm not being the, you know, I'm not being a good coach. I'm really unwell. So I think that's sort of where I'm going with this. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in. So you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. So if you know you're due on, you might want to start wearing your period patch 24 hours beforehand, just so that your muscles begin to relax and you're less likely to have really bad cramps. To find out more about BU, you can just head to link in my show notes or go to www.buonline.co.uk. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you kind of feel a bit overwhelmed by your pain and your symptoms and you really just don't know where to start with managing them, then tracking your symptoms over a couple of months or even just a month to see what your triggers might be could be really helpful. I've put together a free download that helps you track your pain, your mood, your brain fog, uh, your bloating, where you are in your cycle, your eating habits, your stress levels, so many different things um, in a really simple and effective way. If you'd like to try it out, um, obviously it's free, just head to the show notes, follow the link and you can get your own copy.
so that's where I'm at. And I just, and I, I kind of wanted to talk through my history as well, because this is kind of the putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Because when I got, when I got my diagnosis, it really, um, I knew it. I knew I was, I knew it was going to be positive. But then when I got the results, I had this really intense feeling of relief and grief and anger. And it was because I knew at that point that I had had it all my life. I'd had it since I was a child, really small child. And I suddenly realized how my whole life has been dictated by SIBO and how different it could have been had that not had happened. But it did happen. So there was no point, you know, going down that road. But I did have to grieve to a degree. And I wonder if part of the struggles I've had recently with my health is that it's almost like a full body reaction to this news, almost like a, oh, I understand now you can stop pretending. You can stop pretending and just realize like you're walking around with something that's been robbing your food and nutrients for years and years and years and poisoning you, basically. And I've just had this, you know, this sort of exhaustion overtake me. Um, and I, I guess I haven't really had time to sit with it properly, but you know, moments when you're doing the washing up or brushing your teeth, I think about it and I think about how so much of my life has been dictated. So when I was two, two and a half, I was hospitalized with, I can never say this, gastroenteritis, gastro enteritis gastroenteritis let's just hope that's right that's a leading cause of SIBO especially if it's severe or you know acute and mine was um I was severely dehydrated and I was kept in for a couple of days and I wasn't really old enough at that point to have conscious memories although weirdly enough I do have a a tiny tiny memory of being in that in the hospital um I think that's my earliest memory. Um, I don't remember anything else. But from from the point that I can consciously remember, I have always had bloating and IBS issues to the point that as a baby, because obviously I was a you know I was a baby then or toddler, I had a nickname for because of my IBS issues. My family gave me a nickname. And now that it made me mad anyway, but it makes me so mad now because I'm like, you noticed my IBS issues bad, bad enough to, to give me a nickname, but not enough to investigate it and to take me to the doctors. And this is sort of a running theme throughout my childhood. Um, I look back at pictures of myself as a child my cousin, when I was 18 or 21, made me a um, a photo album. And there's this distinct one of us in our um, swimsuits. And she's so tiny. Um, and there was me with this big bloated belly on this 
you know, small child. And um, I remember, all you know, that that was really hard for me. My cousins were, um, you know, they were like supermodels in the making and they were very, very, um, they were thin children. And I was just, I was just normal size, slim child. Um, and, but I had this big distended belly and I couldn't work out why we were so different and they were my best friends and I hated it. We used to dress up in, um, our great granny's ballroom, um, gowns because she was a ballroom dancer and she was tiny. These dresses must've been like a size four or a size six or something. Um, and I couldn't fit, I could fit in them, but like trying to do them up at the back across like where my, you know, across my abdomen, they got really, really tight. And sometimes I couldn't do them up at all. And my cousin could, and it was, and we used to dress up in them to put on plays and it was just really, really humiliating. And, um, at some point, two things that really stood out to me at about this time. And I was at school by this point, primary school. Um, that I started developing really bad nausea and anxiety. I think the anxiety probably was there already, but I started vomiting every night in what I believed was apprehension for, for, um, for school the next day. So this is like literally when I started school. But I now think that the nausea was because I was at the kind of peak of my SIBO, like it was really starting to like kick in and I think that that had a you know an impact on the nausea and the vomiting but I also think it had an impact on my anxiety the other thing that happened was I don't know what how old I was when this happened but um I think I was primary school age and um one of my family members told me they were they were washing me and my bloated belly was out and they told me ladies don't let their bellies hang out they suck them in so that's what I did and I have done that all of my life ever since and it has meant that I've developed very strong stomach muscles and um I became completely obsessed with having a flat stomach um so uh, I'm going to fast forward. No, I'm going to wait. But it, it started a spiral. It started a spiral of realizing other people noticed and that I was wrong for having this distended belly and that I needed to hold it in. And so that's that's, that's what I did. I didn't even question it. I just did it. And um, it made me feel so much more worse around my cousin's and around other people who didn't have it. And yeah, and so the anxiety, I mean, I remember again, as as long as I can remember, I've had anxiety, but it really went up a notch at school. And one of the um, key signs and key symptoms of SIBO is severe anxiety. And the reason why that occurs is because the gases that are released 
in the quantities that are released are toxic to us. Um, especially hydrogen sulfide SIBO, it can have really uh, neuro neurological effects on our brain. Um, and on top of that, the lipopolysaccharides can have a really um, negative effect on our brain as well, causing brain fog, fatigue, and severe anxiety. SIBO, like the side effects of SIBO are neurological problems, and severe anxiety is one of them. And Dr. Alison Seebecker couldn't stress that enough in our course. She was saying like, you know, the type of anxiety that people have when they come to her is just acute. And often it's sort of needing to know everything and um, spiraling about the future. So really getting down into the details and really worrying about things and really needing to know exactly how something should be and then and spiraling massively about the future. And that is just me to a T. And in a way, it served me well. Um, it's, you know, it's made me who I am. Um, it's probably the reason why I'm so dedicated to endometriosis. Um, it's, it served me through school. It got me good grades. Um, it made me stay in line in school and not get in trouble because I was so terrified of what would happen if I didn't do my homework or what would happen if I, failed a test or if I didn't get an A, like I was just so that perfectionist, that my perfectionist traits stem from my anxiety. And my anxiety is really fear, fear of what happens if I get in trouble, what happens if um, I'm not good at this, and just really thinking about the worst case scenarios. And that coupled with a very unhappy home, very stressful environment and feeling very unsafe at home and and really unsettled and feeling like anything can change at any moment. Together, the SIBO and that was just a recipe for complete, just total, yeah, total anxiety and really severe like OCD patterns and perfectionist and workaholic traits. And I realized as I grew up that I could control some of my anxiety to a degree and control some of my life by basically giving into the anxiety and working as hard as I possibly could in order to control the outcome. So I realized that school was really the only thing I could control and that was going was always reliable for me. I knew if I worked really, really hard, I'd get good grades. The teachers would like me. And, um, you know, and I learned quite early on because I just listened to everything. I took everything in. I took it really, really seriously. Um, SATs were the end of my life. Like I literally thought if I didn't pass these at the best of my ability, then that was it. I was going to just like be homeless. I was just going to like fail at everything and I wouldn't be able to get into secondary school. Um, everything was a huge deal to me. And I took, so I remember, I think we were six I think we were six or seven when they started asking us what we wanted to be when we were older. And they said, you know, if you know, you work hard, you're good at school, you can, that, that's how you will be able to do that career in your life. And that's sort of, I guess, 
when I realize that if I work really, really hard, I can have my own life and I can control my own life and I won't be um, stuck in a situation that I found myself in as a child. And so there were sort of two things at play. There was the the anxiety fueled by, um, oh my God, I can't be bad at this. I can't get in trouble. I can't, you know, what not pass my SATs, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there was this anxiety fueled by, um, if you don't make it, if you don't work hard enough, you're never going to escape this. And I was thinking these things at that age because of such things that were happening at home. And I'm not going to go into them because they're just not relevant. And I, I'm an open book. I would, but if anyone in my family listened, I think they would be, we've never spoken about it. And I think they would be really, it just wouldn't go down well. So together, you know, these created this perfect outcome for anxiety, which just completely dictated everything I did. And I look back and I realize that that has been the constant in my life. Anxiety, which is rooted in fear, has been my biggest driver. And, um, you know, I would literally like, I think I've told this story before, but we had to build like a toy robot out of, um, you know, toilet roll rolls and um, cereal boxes and egg boxes. And I had a complete nervous breakdown that mine wasn't going right. And I got taken out of school for like, I don't know, a week or something. I'd spend ages on my homework. I would like sit in the bath crying about going into school the next day. I had friends. I wasn't bullied. Teachers liked me. I was good at school. But it was like I had to, um, the pressure of keeping it all in place because I knew that I had to be a certain way in order to keep those things in place and that I knew how hard I worked to keep those in place. Um, all of my conversations were, you know, like calculated around like, I need to make friends with people. I don't want to become bullied. Like I was really scared about being bullied. Um, my dad was severely bullied and God knows why would tell me all of the stories about it as a child. Like literally my bedtime stories were him telling me about this. So I think I just, my anxiety hooked onto that. And, um, yeah, so I grew up in primary school like this. And then obviously it went in, on into my teenage years. And in the first year of secondary school, that's when I developed my eating disorder. Well, I mean, the eat I guess the eating disorder had been developing in primary school age, really, because I was already holding my stomach in and thinking about that. But then when I got to secondary school, I was, it was a girls only school and, um, you know, I was just surrounded by all of these girls, um, who didn't seem to have this distended belly problem that I had. So that's when I started, um, restricting my food. And when I started obsessive, obsessively exercising like hundreds of sit-ups a day, and three hours of being on the, my exercise bike, I got an exercise bike and I would literally like sit on my exercise bike for three hours. Um, and it re it morphed over the years. It got 
really bad over the years. Um, by the time I was in my A-levels, I was obviously at this point, we had all started drinking. And so I could have a flat stomach by the weekend. I would stop eating on a Wednesday. And um, so I could drink enough and not put on the calories and weight um, on at the weekend, but also so I could be I could have my stomach flat enough that I could wear something that I wanted to wear because I was obsessed with my silhouette. Like I was obsessed by this point. Like I didn't just want a flat stomach. I wanted it to be as tiny as possible. And, um, and that's really where it came from. Like I started to notice, oh, my stomach gets big when I eat. I don't know why. I didn't think there was an issue. Originally I thought it was fat. So I, that's that's why I started dieting. And then I thought that it was, um, I, I realized that it got worse when I ate. So I was like, okay, so I need to basically get as all of the fat off my stomach so that when I blow it, it doesn't look as bad. And then when I and eat as little as possible so the bloating doesn't happen in the first place. And I want to make this clear, like, I'm talking from a perspective of how I was back then. Like, I don't think that a tiny waist is, you know, beauty and a distended belly is not beauty. Like, now I think, like, all bodies are beautiful and everyone has to find a shape that they feel comfortable with and um, that is healthy for them and feels healthy for them. Um, and clearly me starving myself so I could binge drink at the weekend was not healthy. Um, but unfortunately I got rewarded, you know, like I was, I was kind of like known amongst my friends and still am for having really good abs and uh, a really flat stomach, um, because they didn't see, they didn't see it. And um, I was always holding it in. And so they, I mean, they knew I had an eating disorder, but they they didn't know about my stomach problem. So it got really, really destructive. And that, you know, that eating disorder ruled my life. I was exhausted and starving at school. Um, my stomach would be rumbling. It was really embarrassing. And then I would have to really distract myself through break whilst everyone ate. I would make my sandwiches the night before and then I would throw them under a car in the morning. I always think back to like the guy, <laughs> the person whose car it was, every time they drove away, they must have been like, what the fuck? Why are there sandwiches under my car? Um, but, you know, I would just make the sandwiches the night before. So my mum thought that I was, um, thought that I was eating. Um, and eventually my friend started buying my sandwiches off me. And, um, I mean, no one, I think like one girl seriously tried to help or one or two, but no one really tried to help. It was kind of like a laughing thing. Like everyone laughed at it. It was a joke. Like, oh, Jess will have a piece of lettuce. Um, or, you know, Jess lives off air. Uh, it was bitchy remarks and jokes from my friends and sarky, bitchy um swipes from my mum no one 
no one genuinely like thought about how is the best way we can support this and so I you know just struggled through and there were times when um it would result in sort of bulimic tendencies where I would I couldn't make myself sick um so I would binge eat usually after my mom had been on on a food shop on a Friday I would like lock myself in the bathroom and eat bowls and bowls of cocoa pops and lots of chocolate bars and double chocolate chip muffins and slices of bread um there was a lot of crap in our house at the time so it was sort of quite easy to eat it without noticing and my mum had binge eating tendencies to a degree too or comfort eating tendencies so I don't even think that she would have noticed um and my dad was just oblivious (laughs) Um, and I actually don't think he has any idea thinking about it. Um, and so, yeah, I would lock myself into, in the bathroom and then this is prior to like Friday nights being out, you know, drinking. And then, um, and then I would go, I would try to be sick (laughs) and it wouldn't work. So then I would go and, um, exercise for, you know, three hours and, um, And then, yeah, when we were able to go out, I would be drinking like orange juice or milk for um, those days leading up to it. And sometimes I would have an apple, um, a Diet Coke. If I was really, really starving, I'd have like half a plain jacket potato with salt um, and then maybe a cup of soup when I got home. I think by that point, my mum was probably doing shift work. So she wasn't there in the evenings. But anyway, um, and yeah, and then Friday, I definitely wouldn't have anything. And then I would um, binge drink vodka on the Friday night Um, and then start again on Saturday. Really breaks my heart to think about what I put myself through and what I put my body through. Um, and emotionally, like, obviously you don't go through 11 years of an eating disorder and not go through some really, really dark emotional times, um, and just absolute crippling self-esteem. Um, so then I started eating when I met my ex-boyfriend. Unfortunately, it was an abusive relationship, so I don't think I was in a place to have healed at that point but he got me eating and then my stomach really started to blow up and I think because I was obviously just I was eating again and he really noticed it and um at that point I started getting nausea again uh really bad at night all the time and then I got my diagnosis of endo and I don't, I don't think I ever put my nausea down to endo, but eventually about two years after being diagnosed and I started learning about endo, I did put my fatigue down to endo. Um, and I put like all of the other weird things that I had that didn't feel right in my body. I put down to endo, but something didn't feel right about that. 
you know, I put my anxiety down to it and depression because they're associated with endo. I hadn't, most of that association comes from like being in chronic pain for years and years. But um, I had been in chronic pain, you know, I hadn't been in chronic pain since the beginning of my periods because I barely had periods. It was, that that had started way before the endo pain. So it didn't really make sense. So, but I just was like, I don't really have another explanation for this. So I allowed, so I just assumed it was endo and um, obviously got down to managing my endo. And then I had um, another boyfriend a couple of years later. We weren't in a, a long-term relationship. It was together about six months. And I remember thinking at that point, at this point I was at center point, and I remember thinking, I noticed how well he was and how vibrant he was. And um, he stayed around my flat a lot. Um, I was flat. I was living in a flat share and he was there a lot. Um, too much. You can tell why we broke up. And I realized that it was the first time we worked together. So I guess that's I don't know why it didn't come up so much with like my ex, maybe because that was such a volatile and unhappy relationship. There was always something else to be fighting about or, or something. So I wasn't really focused on my health, but I realized, um, with this guy that every day I had a symptom to complain about and I'm very verbal and, um, I grew up with my mum being very verbal and like talking out loud to herself. So I kind of always knew what mood she was in and some and stuff. And um, so I have picked up that habit. I'm really verbal. I'll just, if I'm in pain, it just comes out my mouth. Like, oh, that hurts. And I realized like, oh my God, like every day we're together, I've got a new thing to complain about and he has nothing. And it really bothered me. And I even thought, Maybe I just, maybe I should be alone. Maybe I should be alone for the rest of my life because I think I had put started putting the pieces of the puzzle together at this point and I just thought, you know, I, I guess I thought it was endo and I was like, I don't think that I can, if this is endo, how am I going to live with someone in my life when they are so well and I'm not? And those were clearly irrational thought. And I now, you know, I now am on totally on the other side of that. And um, that's not a justified fear. And if you are, your endo is so severe, you can't get on top of it. That does not mean you shouldn't be with someone. You just need to be with someone who understands and can support you through that. And um but I just remember thinking this some there's more to this, but I didn't have any answers, so I just carried on thinking it was endo. And then, you know, I treated, I really got on top of the endometriosis. Um, the pain started, you know, going down, and then I got it to the point where there was zero pain. But my anxiety got out of control, and so did my fatigue. Um, and I mean, this had started happening during the pain um, getting bad again. Um, but it persisted after that. 
And then I started developing like the um, dizziness and the histamine intolerance symptoms and the bladder pain, obviously, all of these things leading up into up until today. And it never made sense to me. Why is my endo under control? Why do I no longer feel like I have endo in terms of the pain, but my fatigue is getting worse and my um, anxiety is getting worse? Now, I have had um, a change with my energy for sure in the sense of when I started balancing my blood sugar, I no longer had those insane crashes that I used to have throughout the day where I literally couldn't keep my eyes open and thought that I was falling asleep at my desk. Since I've been doing that, I don't get that. Um, and I do have more energy and I have much less brain fog. Um, but there's, oh gosh, how do I explain it? I had that more, I had more energy and I think the brain fog is still better, but I had that more energy, um, for a period of time. And then in the past, I don't know, year, you know, I've had this sort of HPA axis dysfunction symptom, symptoms returning worse. And I think that is in part SIBO. Um, I think it's in part HPA axis dysfunction. So my cortisol output being really low. And I think it is nutritional deficiencies from the SIBO because I'm not absorbing food, um, not absorbing my nutrients properly, and I've got a lot of deficiencies. Um, so it's weird. The, the fatigue I feel now is different. Like, I can't explain it. I don't feel tired. I just, I, I don't feel tired. I feel, like, weary, like, so, so weary that I could take some time off and not know when I could return. It doesn't feel like, it's not like, unstable energy levels where I'm like falling asleep at my desk I can I'm functioning except in the past couple of weeks <laughs> um where I, but it's it's like a weariness to like the depths of my bones and my soul uh, it's really hard to explain I wish I could I wish I could explain it I don't know how it's there's two different feelings um and I got on top of one of the types of tiredness and then this other one has sort of rolled in and I think that is you know, the SIBO and I think it's HPAX is dysfunction. And, you know, it just, it never made sense. Like, why did I, why have I had this crippling anxiety since I was a child? And I wasn't just a nervous child. You don't just become like a nerve. You're not born a nervous child like that. Like so acute, so early on. Um, and all of the nutrient deficiencies as well, they cause neurological problems. How long have I not been absorbing nutrients? Has that been since I was like two and a half? I think you can see why, why I was grieving this. Like how long has my body been starving for proper nutrients and then starving for actual food? And how long have I been driving myself to exhaustion because of this merciless anxiety? And so I do feel like I'm going through a grieving process but also a process of like, oh my God, it makes sense now. Like it all makes sense now. And 
the bladder pain. I used I'd be like, well, why, why do I have bladder pain when my endo? Because you can, you know, if you go back to my interview with Elizabeth from IC Wellness, she was talking about, or maybe it was actually not Elizabeth that this was chat was with. So, well, anyway, recently, I can't remember who it was that I spoke to about this, but we I was saying, you know, but my endo pain has gone away, like my inflammation has gone down. Why does why is my why do I have bladder pain that's worsened? It didn't make sense to me because if the inflammation the inflammation spreads from like the sort of wounded area right the endo area and then bit by bit everything else gets inflamed in the area the longer you're left with this level of inflammation and pain but mine was my endo pain has subsided so it just didn't make sense that the icy pain was getting worse but of course I was just living with the SIBO that was just consistently affecting my um my body and those lipopolysaccharides that are released into the body have been found in the pelvic cavity um of people with endometriosis and um you know there's bacteria in the bladder as well so if you've got gut dysbiosis if you've got a bacterial imbalance in the gut it's more likely, it's likely you have a bacterial imbalance in your bladder as well, which can cause problems. Obviously, the histamine intolerance makes sense now because SIBO causes histamine intolerances. Um, so it causes food sensitivities. So like having my, um, I you know, I tested positive for gluten intolerance and dairy intolerance. So that makes sense. Um, just so much makes sense now. And um, Oh, things like, you know, I've had low iron over the years, even when I did eat meat. Um, and that's a sign of SIBO because you're not, you can't absorb iron properly. And another thing that always really rattled me, and maybe this is just the nature of endo, but I get, you know, I can get my inflammation down and eat this, per, you know, eat a quote unquote perfect diet um really really beautiful anti-inflammatory diet and um then I might mess up and have like something with a date in it on my period or or someone gives me something with caffeine in it or something and I'm suddenly crippled when I was in zero pain before and I used to just wonder like and I, you know, I notice like I can keep my endo under control as long as I'm really very, very much on top of it. I, I can be a bit lenient, as you guys know, um, or quite lenient in my um, ovulatory and follicular phase. But um, when I am, I'm still have, you know, I, I, I will notice a difference come my period. Like if I've had more, if I've had like more gluten or more cups of tea in those phases, then my period, my pain will creep up to a level two. And if I push it or, you know, if I had, you know, even lots of sugar or something, it would creep up even further. So I always wondered, like, will I always have to be this controlled? Like, is there something more that I'm missing? Like, could, is there something more that I need to heal? Um, that's going to allow me to be a bit more flexible with my diet. And I think this is what it is, you know, that like my lipopolysaccharides are highly inflammatory to the body. 
And regardless of how um, anti-inflammatory, i.e. those, I was going to say swear word, those things will be circulating in my body regardless because they are as a result of SIBO when SIBO, when you eat and SIBO produces toxins and SIBO goes through its natural cycle of dying and growing more because it's just like any cell, it will die. Um, doesn't mean you're killing it off, but the different bacteria will die and break down and they release the L, uh, lipopolysaccharides and that will go through my gut wall and into my body. So no, no matter how well I'm eating, how much of an anti-inflammatory diet I'm eating, there is still this level of inflammation in my body. So I think for me, that's why I could have like a diet that was totally anti-inflammatory and then have like one thing, one thing towards my period and be crippled. And that never really added up. Like how can like one date, how can one date undo a month of anti-inflammatory eating? And I think what it, what it is, is that like there is still this level of inflammation in my body and it doesn't take much to tip it over. Add in a bit of sugar and boom. And that's why, you know, I'm so, I said to you guys multiple times, I'm so, so sensitive to sugar. And I think that's what it is for me. Um, we know that gut health has a really strong link to pelvic pain and um, endometriosis and, and bladder pain. And I think that's what's going on for me. Without me addressing the SIBO, um, I won't fully know just how like uninflamed <laughs> I can get. Um, and it's wonderful that I can make changes to my diet and lifestyle and be, you know, and have, um, balanced hormones and, um, balance and low to zero pain. But it just, I just know instinctively that my inflammation could be better. And I think this is what it is. Uh, I think this is why. So I don't know if that's like helpful. Maybe it's not. But um, I don't know if you notice parts of yourself within my story. The anxiety maybe um, or this bloating that seems to get worse when you eat um, or like the fatigue that doesn't shift or like only having symptom control when you're like you know, totally in control of like how you're eating or something, or you're restricting a lot. I don't know if it's going to be more damage. Have I know that that's quite like a dramatic story to tell with my eating disorder, and um, I don't know if it was maybe too much. Now I reflect. Um, I hope it wasn't. If it was really too triggering for you, please do reach out and we can, you know, have a chat about it. Um. I hope that if any of you are going through the same, it makes you feel less alone um, and gives you also, I hope that this gives you the like permission slip to like grieve and, and feel angry. I'm still, I think I'm, you can tell I'm still processing this. Um, and I'm just dumbfounded how much SIBO has dictated my life really. I don't know what my life would have been like without SIBO and endo and um, going through what I went through has made me a really compassionate person and has given me a really good work ethic and 
has been, it's meant that I can do what I do today. So I'm really thankful. And I'm, you know, I can't, I can't change the past. I can't, you know, um, change the fact that I have SIBO. So I'm glad that it turned out the way it did. And, um, and I'm also thankful that I have mild SIBO. So, well, we don't know what this hydrogen sulfide is saying, but you know, it seems like I have mild SIBO. So, um, hopefully it's not going to be so difficult to, to manage it. So, um, what I'm going to be doing in the meantime, until I do the treatment is my anxiety is getting worse. It's been getting worse year on year on year for about six or seven years. So there is a supplement that's called, I think it's called endotoxin something. Endotoxin is another word for lipopolysaccharides. And um, it's by Invivo. Um, and Invivo is a really brilliant brand. They do lab testing. That's where I got my tests done um, for the GI map and the um, organic acids test. And um, that helps to remove lipopolysaccharides from the gut. If they've already crossed the gut barrier into the bloodstream, then that's sort of a different a different story. But um, at least I can eliminate as much as I can from my gut. So I'm going to start taking um, those supplements to um, make it through the next couple of months and reduce my anxiety because it is becoming really difficult to live with. And then, um, I'm going to continue with all of my anti-inflammatory stuff that I do, but I'm also, um, taking N-acetylcysteine, um, because that is a biofilm disruptor. So if I do have a biofilm in my bladder as well, um, then that will help kind of start treating that before I start doing the SIBO and hopefully I won't have like double die off. So I'm doing that. And then I'm, um, I'm sort of just keeping up with like omega free supplements. I have curcumin every day in my, um, protein powder. Um, I have, um, lots of ginger tea and ginger supplements. Um, if I want to take them, I eat a really anti-inflammatory diet. I eat a lot of anti-inflammatory specific foods, um, like olive oils, berries, um, lots of colorful fruit and veg, herbs and spices. Um, and of course I do, you know, I, I follow sort of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, so to speak. So, you know, I meditate, um, and exercise, um, and I'm trying to do a lot more resting. But one thing I am considering, if anyone is hardcore vegan, please don't hate me. I am considering maybe potentially trying bone broth. The reason being is that um, there is a, um, I'm going to call it a compound, but it's not. It's it's a nutrient. Let's just say a nutrient. A nutrient in bone broth that actually heals leaky gut. It heals the brush border. It heals that lining of your, of your gut. Now, you can take that as a supplement, but in my training, um, we've been taught that there is a cancer risk with this supplement when you take it in therapeutic dosages. Um, it can basically feed any cancer cells that you don't know are there. Now, I have seen countless, countless gut healing supplements with this supplement in. 
It's called um let me just let me just get it up. Got it. I got it. Glutamine. It's an amino acid. Um so I do this this is one of my anxiety things. I do this thing where I know what something is, but then I'm like get so much anxiety about making that statement that's what it is that I just say, "Oh, it's this thing and give a more vague answer." Um so glutamine um is yeah so you it's in loads of gut healing supplements now um and I, that's to, honestly it's quite confusing um i need to speak to dr jessica drummond because obviously she's my tutor and this is a training course that i did and it was in that course where we learned about glutamine and how in therapeutic doses in a supplement it can feed cancer cells um that are you know you don't know that they're there she had she referenced another doctor a guest who said um it's fine in like food levels so if you're having it in bone broth then that's great it's like an essential nutrient but it's when it's like in therapeutic dosages so maybe maybe the supplements that have it in have it in a safe amount but um I'm not sure and I need to clarify that. And so I just, yeah, I just need to find that out. Because obviously we we don't know if we've got cancer cells growing in us until we get diagnosed. So, um, so I'm either going to start taking that supplement because it starts to repair the gut lining or um, I might try like one pack of like bone broth in something like a soup and see if I can mentally emotionally and physically stomach it I haven't eaten meat in in years and it sort of breaks my soul to think about doing this but um the state of my health has been scaring me so um maybe maybe this is something that needs to be done um and the and so bone broth has like you know a lot of collagen and gelatin and that really helps to repair the damage that SIBO does to the gut lining. Now, the problem with it is, is that it might feed the SIBO too, but everything essentially feeds SIBO, like fiber and carbohydrates feed SIBO. So the only things that don't feed SIBO are meat and oil. So, you know, like I'm feeding my SIBO all day, every day. So it doesn't massively make a difference. And if I'm not having it in large quantities, I would hope that it doesn't flare me up too much. But if I tried it, I guess I would see and then if it's too bad then I'm not going to do it because surely that's just going to do more damage to me to just flare the SIBO up more but my theory is um to try and start healing that gut lining as much as I can now the SIBO is going to be damaging the gut lining continuously but if I can just start to heal it a little bit then I'm hoping I can reduce the amount of lipopolysaccharides that are passing through the gut barrier and into my bloodstream because my concern right now is not so much um my SIBO symptoms because I've lived with them all my life it's more how bad my anxiety is and um how bad my nutrition my nutritional deficiencies are getting and as long as my brush border my gut lining is in bad shape I'm not going to be absorbing those nutrients so I'm just thinking about 
doing what I can until I get to do this treatment. I was taking digestive enzymes and um, hydrochloric acid to uh, replace my stomach acid and um, my digestive enzymes because they were both low. And um, that's a sign of um, well, it's, it's what SIBO causes it. So I'm not breaking down my food properly and I'm not absorbing my food properly. So um, I was taking those. And for the first time in my life, guys, literally my nails have grown. I have dreamt about having long nails all my life and they never, ever grew. As a child, I used to be in the bath and put my fingers in the bath and then allow the drops to hang without dripping and just imagine what it would look like to have long nails. And... Um, now I have long nails. So they were definitely working to a degree, but I stopped because I had such problems after the um, elimination diet that I stripped back as much as possible on all of my supplements because I felt like, um, so I started getting really excessive burping um, after the elimination diet. And it seemed to get worse every time I took like, digestive enzymes and um, hydrochloric acid. And one of the reasons why our digestive enzymes deplete with SIBO is because SIBO eats it. So I was like, mm, is the SIBO sort of like, maybe I'm getting some of the digestive enzymes, but is the SIBO just like eating the digestive enzymes? So it's just creating gas. So um, I stopped um, and, I'm, and I've noticed a reduction in my burping going down very slowly month by month. Um, so I'm sort of going to wait for that to subside and then reintroduce those. Um, but right now my priority is um, basically getting down these lipopolysaccharides so that I am not battling so much with the fatigue and the brain fog and the anxiety that comes with that um, and healing my gut lining as much as possible. So maybe that will be a gut healing supplement like glutamine or maybe it'll be bone broth um the problem with a lot of the gut healing supplements is that they often have a lot of SIBO triggers in them like aloe vera slippery elm chamomile um marshmallow root all of that all of those can aggravate SIBO so um it's tricky it's it's tricky I don't want to take a supplement that's just mainly those because they're sort of gut lining soothing but not really rebuilding I need something that's got like the protein and the amino acids um to actually rebuild my gut lining like it's not that I'm soothing the gut lining it's not I'm actually having to rebuild it it's got holes in it so um yeah so I'm, I'm going to find out about if there's a safe dosage dosage for glutamine um, perhaps, perhaps it's been updated since, um, our training was recorded and, um, make a decision whether I'm going to take glutamine or bone broth. Um, the other risk with bone broth is it's high histamine. So that again might be a problem for me, but weirdly, like I, I mean, it's not weird to be honest, because it depends how many histamines you've had in one day, but I can tolerate some histamines and not others. So, um, it might be okay. Um, honestly, I, I, I have no idea how I'm going to react to it emotionally or, or physically. Um, but I, 
I do feel like I'm at the point where I need to make some quite big changes. Um, and that might have to be one of them just temporarily until I can, you know, get on this treatment. So that's where I am at with the SIBO. Um, it's not where I am at with my HP axis dysfunction. Um, that's a, I think that's another episode, but, um, that's where I'm at with my SIBO. And, um, I hope it helps to hear a little bit about the treatment that I might be going through and, um, my story and, um, yeah, I, this is an hour and a half. I'm going to go and, um, I will see you guys next week. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.